I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico. And I'm Dean Detloff. And this week we're joined by a good friend of mine, Hector Acera Ferrer. He is a colleague of mine at the Institute for Christian Studies. He'll tell you all kinds of more things about himself, much better than I could in just a moment. But uh, we thought that it'd be great to have Hector on now to talk to us a little bit about his uh, reading of Columbia and what's going on there, as well as the things that he studies in liberation theology. So last week, we talked to Jim Hodgson to learn a little bit about Bolivia. And we're just staying on that train of trying to figure out what's going on in Latin America. Yeah, it's a really cool episode. We uh, talk about Colombia. We talk about liberation theology. We talk about the indigenous movement that's going on right now in Colombia. So you got a little bit of everything, even current events thrown in there. What a, what a deal. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, it's also classic Hector just knows a lot about a lot of things <laughs> and happy to share. So it's great to have Hector on the show. Um, long overdue, but glad we made it happen. And I'm sure this won't be the last. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's go to Hector. Hector, welcome to the Magnificast. Uh, if you live in Toronto and you spend any time around Catholics or interreligious dialogue people, you probably already know who Hector is. Uh, he manages to be part of everything that's important in this city. Uh, he's also one of my uh, closest colleagues and longest friends at the Institute for Christian Studies, where we've studied together for almost 10 years now, which is a pretty wild thing to reflect on. Uh, so you're long overdue to be on the show, Hector. We're really happy to have you here to talk to us about your research and liberation theology and some of what's happening in Colombia and around the region. Could you start by introducing yourself for our listeners? What do you study? What's important to you? Well, thank you, Dean and Matt, for the invitation. I'm, I'm happy to be here. And uh, I will try to, to share what I study, what I do. So <laughs> uh, it's just a lot of things within that like bag of what I care about. But uh, I would say that Kind of the focus of my research is liberation theology, and 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 it comes from a, a real existential concern. I I grew up in in a context that was really infused by like liberation theology principles, um, and I really wasn't aware of it. It wasn't it wasn't a term that was used to describe how how um, faith was lived. In, in in Colombia, so that's I grew up in in, in Bogota, and and the particular part of town where I was was uh, a very active, like a socially active place. So that's that all ended into uh, me um, 
years after I started my undergrad, uh, reflecting back on my upbringing and that context and realizing that the, the string that brought it all together uh, was a, was that movement that, that is easily identifiable from the distance as liberation theology, but I didn't know I, I lived within when I was in, in, in Colombia. And uh, I think that the, the, the main focus of things, I, um, I use a lot of continental philosophy, so people like Paul Ricoeur um, and Hannah Arendt to make sense of, of, of that movement, to, to provide some context, some terms, some, um, some philosophical categories that can help me walk through that as I, as I develop uh, kind of my own language to be able to talk about liberation theology as a, as, as a social phenomenon. So that, that is what I study. I'm currently um, working on my dissertation and hopefully uh, finishing it within a year or two. That's really cool. Well, I hope you I hope you get it all done. I hope you get the gestation finished. I guess we could we could talk a little bit more about Colombia and the context there. I think it would be a really helpful thing to sort of frame the larger conversation that we'll end up having. Um, you know, the history and current situation in Colombia is a really complicated one and hard to parse out, especially for people in North America who have you know no idea what's happening in the world. So you've closely followed the conversations there around like hope and peace and dialogue and paths forward through the conflict. Um, so for people who aren't really familiar with the story in Colombia and who maybe have never heard of something like FARC, for example, could you just give us like a brief background on what kinds of pressures make up Colombia today? I, I, I'm not sure I can give a brief account of that, but I, <laughs> I will give some highlights of it. So I when I first saw this question, I uh, went back to kind of dates, like formative or transform, transformative dates in the, the history of Colombia. Um, and I'll give you four that... that that are key. Uh, I'll start with really 1492. So Columbus uh, arrives in uh, in the islands, and uh, this is particularly important for Colombians and Colombian kind of historical memory because the the, the term Colombia is Columbus land. So uh, we are uh, we understand ourselves as 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 a product of of that colonization process. Um, and, and to be honest, um, there is very little awareness about the, um, the type of um, oppression and, and marginalization that began from that moment on. Um, so it's only in the last 30, 40 years that that have become a mainstream conversation. I guess no, no different from what is happening um, in a place like the United States where it is the reflection on the historical uh, the historical past and all those atrocities that that is coming to kind of to a fore with 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 the current atrocities that we're witnessing now through everything being exposed through social media. Second date that is important, 1810 uh, is the Declaration of Independence in Colombia um, that that marks the beginning of a, a second chapter in the history of the country, which is um, is not anymore under the Spanish rule than but there are complexities around around that. It really independence didn't come until 1819. Um, but in the full independence has never been seen really because there has been a foreign power or two or three or several um, having a great hold over Colombian politics and 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 really the the the, the life at all levels uh, since. Since the time of of the um, 
of the independence. So uh, it has been the states at the times, it has been Spain, it has been a combination of those two and some of the, the European uh, countries. Um, and all of that has uh, made Colombian very reliant on, on that external aid slash intervention slash oppression. Third date, 1948, is the um, the killing of um, um, presidential candidate, a liberal presidential candidate, um, Jorge Eliezer Gaitan, in downtown Bogota, that that created a, a, a kind of a mass um, destruction of the city and and decades of violence because he um, was like everybody knows he was he was going to win the elections after a a long conservative period, and um, and he really uh, was the first person to galvanize the um, the desire to have a country that was not ruled by the the elite and the foreign elites. So he was able to articulate that in terms that that most people will able, will be able to relate to and understand. And his killing uh, sparked a lot of um, left right. Uh, liberal conservative uh, violence, and then the the fourth moment, fourth date is 1991. Is the the current the 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 writing of the of the current constitution of Colombia. So, in spite its uh, its context of oppression and everything that has happened with with the country, we managed to develop uh, a constitution that is somehow uh, embedded in a lot of the um, the more progressive. Uh, ideals around having a solid, robust democracy, having minorities being protected, um, allowing um, women and and different racial groups to 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 have a voice within the the construction of country. So that's those are the four points that will give you a sense of those cross pressures that the Colombia, which is um, the resistance to the oppression that comes from uh, comes from foreign uh, agents. The, the the internal class struggle between the landowners and most of the population, and then the, the third aspect of it, which is um, the the drug, the production and drug trafficking, then then is added to how those pressures get uh, get sorted out in starting in the 70s and continuing to 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 date. Um, but all that context uh, to just to to create uh, a framework to understand the groups that, that debate with one another what Colombia should look like. And um, those are guerrillas, than, uh, guerrilla groups that are either of communist or socialist origin. Um, there is the paramilitary groups that are um, the, the illegal army forces that respond to the, to the guerrillas. Uh, because the the state and the the army of the state is not capable of controlling the guerrillas because he's too weak, and then in addition to that, um, a number of private um, illegal groups that de defend or that they claim to defend certain areas of the country. So you have several agents of the conflict all coming together, all claiming different areas, or all um, approaching the the violence and the corruption and everything that happens in the country from different different angles, and uh, the largest of these groups, which was FARC, then um, decides to 
to undertake a peace process with the government, which ends in 2016 with the with this the uh, peace agreement between the government and FARC. But with the absence of FARC, there is now a vacuum of power in the country. So that's where we stand today. Thanks, Hector. That is an impressive way of summarizing everything, uh, for sure. Um, so we appreciate, especially having all those dates are good to have in mind to get a, a long view of what's going on in the country. Um, something I found really fascinating just about your work and getting to know you over the last several years is how you've tried to navigate those issues, those social issues, uh, political issues, using different kinds of tools from theology or philosophy. And in particular, you write a lot about the importance of memory. So in that context, you were just describing where there is a lot of violence and civil war, uh, things like disappearances and people who are not found. Um, you've done all kinds of work on the, the political and theological relevance of that category of memory. Um, do you have some examples maybe that stick out for you where memory is an important feature in Colombian society or where you see that as a, a sort of way of engaging all these complexities that you were just laying out for us? Yeah, I, I think that uh, part of one, what happens that is really, is something common to to Latin America, and I'm sure it happens in other places, but it's particularly relevant to, to the situation in Colombia, is what we call in, in like internally, and, and you'll see that in the media, a gota gota violence. So drop by drop violence. Um, the fact that it didn't, it, there wasn't a big civil war or there wasn't a big uh, a, um, one event that transformed history because it destroyed everything. No, it's been something that has happened since the moment of the conquest and colonization all the way until now. And um, the, the overall uh, population has gotten used to that being the way of being in the world. But that comes with uh, an abandonment of memory. Um, it comes with the desire of people not to remember the atrocities that are committed every day. So I'll give you a, a little example that I, I hope can can illustrate some of these. So when I was a kid, I grew up in the the eighties and early nineties in 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 the in the Colombia of, of Pablo Escobar and the drug wars and uh, the drug wars over the the civil kind of strife that I described earlier and. Um, the, the the newscasts and the newspapers and every every uh, media outlet was so saturated with small instances of violence. Two people killed here, three people disappear here, four people disappear here, three people kill over there, and um, all the news the uh, the newscast and it began around the early nineties sections that were violence free. So they were good items of good news. There are also good news in Colombia. That was kind of the um, the main kind of motto of these of these sections, um, and people started gravitating towards those because they did not want to be exposed to the rest. And that wasn't just a shift in attention; it was a shift in memory. It was people do not want to remember all of that. They did not want to have to wrestle with that memory over and over and over again. And that has created an attitude that has made people somehow resilient to the conflict, but at the same time, it has made the conflict something very difficult to 
um, to tackle and to counter. Because if there is no memory, there is no desire for resistance for it, to, for it not to occur again. By some really uh, shift in, in all the, the powers and all of that, um, we were able to develop a, um, a concerted memory retrieval process that was started by a, a center that was opened really in 2011, the Center for Historical Memory in Colombia, that systematized a lot of the memories around the conflict that had been really lost. And um, that was also in preparation for, the, for, for having really a peace agreement with FARC because there was the expectation that if FARC were, wanted to come, uh, come to the table and have a conversation with the government, people needed to know the truth and people needed to come to terms with the truth and be able to kind of uh, create their own judgments about it. But that's part a number of um, a kind of memory, localized memory retrieval processes uh, done with not only FARC, but many conflict agents, with the paramilitary, with the illegal uh, militia in the cities, with even community members that were in strife with one another because of all these underlying um, a, a unrest. So um, then, uh, it is in that context in which I, I became really kind of passionate about it because I started seeing how um, it wasn't that we had all forgotten or decided to forget about it. It was that, yes, the mainstream media had forgotten about what had happened and was attempting to make that a, um, kind of a, a social policy uh, with, the, with the, really the help of the state. Um, but local communities had their own memory processes. They were, um, they were intensely focused on not forgetting the atrocities so that they wouldn't be committed again. And not just that, there was a second aspect to that. These local communities wanted to uh, retain um, a twofold memory, the memory of the victimization and the atrocity itself, but also the memory of the survival and the resistance. What did people do in those situations that allowed them to survive and continue living, even though they had suffered the worst of the worst? Um, and and these processes they are they are because they are localized they look so different across the board, and that's really fascinating because people develop their own tools to preserve that to preserve those judgments so that farmers and minority communities and mainly groups of women across the country could tell the story when the time came to tell it in public, um, in the kind of larger national uh, stage, and um, so that is. That is really what I study, how those, that, that process of kind of localized memory retrieval processes became a national process. Um, it's not, it's not, a, it's not um, finished, it's not, um, it's not fully resolved, but to me is a hopeful sign of a, of, of a movement towards a, a, an answer to what the country has been suffering for so long. I think that's a really fascinating way to analyze the situation um, through memory and like how the story gets told. Also, it's just such a um, really fascinating and kind of inspiring idea to to not let uh, not let uh, not let like media uh, media sources have sort of the 
the organizing principle of those memories and that the people themselves are really invested in that process. I think that's really fascinating. Um, some of the some of the other work that you've done is, is around ideology and imagination, um, which is, you know, pretty tied to memory as well. I think a lot of people might have a one dimensional understanding of both of those ideas, um, but you do a good job of drawing out the complexities of them in some really interesting ways. So um, do you want to talk a little bit about ideology and imagination and what they mean for you? Yeah, no, that's that, that's a great question, and it, and it it works really well with the idea of a localized memory. So, and retrieval. Um, so a bit of what uh what I've been studying, and I I use the the philosophy of Paul Ricoeur to to make sense of ideology and um and imagination as uh, processes that are complex that can either kind of go wrong or go right or be 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 constructive. Um, so I use I use that uh, that understanding um, to make sense of what happens when those localized uh, memories start entering into conversation with one another in the in the overall kind of national space of dialogue. Um, so um, ideology is is basically a, a, a principle for cohesion for so, so societal cohesion. And what a lot of these communities have discovered on their own is that they are not going to be able to bring about change individually, like either as individual members or as smaller collectives, that they need to associate with one another and create a sense of what it means to be Colombian. Um, and that is an ideological move, is, is trying to create some cohesion between, between all of these stories uh, without necessarily um, Kind of um, flatten the difference between them. Um, that ideology is something that that can kind of at least encompass some of those principles that uh, that they all discover in their own resistance to violence, and make that a mobilizing principle for them as they they seek um, a new type of political regime. And the other side of it, uh, the the imagination side, is that 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 ideology that is built out of memories, out of experiences, out of the desire to have some moral principles connect local communities with one another, that also requires um, a, a a vista. It requires an opening. It requires a place to land. And um, to be completely honest, I. I grew up in a country where we kind of had given up the idea of of an imagined future. Um, we grew up being told that the conflict was never going to end. We grew up in thinking that we were always going to be rejected in other countries, that we would not enter into conversation with anybody else. We grew up thinking that any person that will um, that will somehow resist the government a mismanagement of funds will gonna be a vortex into into corruption. We grew up we grew up no, knowing that a lot of those were realities that were there forever. Um, but some of those the, the the activity of those local communities that I've described before um, have given us a, a sense of, um, of of a possibility of an imagined future that is different from what has been portrayed to us by. Um, by the the elites and and the media that they that they control, um, so tons of groups of, of women who are doing their all their own 
kind of advertisement of what they do in their local communities across the country. That was one of the biggest things of the biggest triggers for change in the late 90s and just experiments like that. So that's why for me, um, seeing the positive side of, of ideology and imagination is key because it, often the nomenclature ideology and its counterpart utopia, they they seem to be negative things that are associated with kind of a collective that is somehow blind that is moving in a particular direction or either breaking with it. But seeing from the side of the local communities coming together, then those are organizing principles. And organizing principles that have a clear impact in how people uh, interact with one another uh, in difference. So hence my uh, kind of attachment to those terms and, and why they, I find them so helpful to understand the situation. Thanks, Hector. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's really interesting, too, to think about positive uses of ideology, for example, you know, not something that Marxists are always too keen on doing or uh, talking about imagination in a way that isn't um, cheap or naive. I think that it's really uh, you make such a compelling case that these terms have so much to offer. Um, I want to go back to something you mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation on liberation theology, because I think it just ties really well into ideology and imagination. Um, as a kind of tradition that's invested in those sorts of things, like you're saying here. Uh, maybe we can talk about the encyclical Fratelli Tutti in a minute, but before we do, it might be helpful to set the stage a little bit by talking about liberation theology and Colombia. Uh, you know, you, you grew up in this context that you say retrospectively you kind of recognize as liberation theology. Um, whenever I think of Colombia and liberation theology, I always think of Camilo Torres, um, who we've, you know, we know you have a lot to say about him in particular. So maybe you could start by talking a bit about Torres and liberation theology in Colombia. You know, what's his place in Colombian society? What's your relationship to him? And how do you see liberation theology kind of, uh, permeating Colombia? Well, a few things to say about Camilo Torres. So the first of them is that he uh, was a very important part of my alma mater in Colombia, to the National University of Colombia. He was the, the founder of the sociology department there, uh, but also a priest and also a priest that, that eventually uh, kind of mobilized to uh, became a, a member of the, the ELN, one of the, the oldest uh, guerrilla groups in Colombia because of his own um, understanding of how, of the possibilities um, for change in Colombia. He kind of arrived to the conclusion that there was no other way to change things, uh, to bring about justice, and a justice that for him was um, um, kind of emerged out of a theological reflection, uh, and that that justice will not be able to to be, um, to be enacted um, with, the, with the current system, um, and that it needed to be violently kind of kind of broken into the country or like brought into into society that way. Um, he is definitely a, a, a key figure to my own understanding of liberation theology, even though he's, he's, a, he's a predecessor of what we officially know as liberation theology. Um, so liberation theology is a movement that, that we, we identified the birth of it in 1968 in, uh, in Medellin with a, a meeting of these Latin American bishops. Uh, so he is a figure that started thinking this way way beyond um, way beyond that. But when you ask kind of about the relationship of Camilo Torres with kind of my own life, is is not is not him specifically. 
is the fact that I grew up surrounded by a lot of priests that were just like him. Um, Camilo Torres was a is was just one more uh, voice within a church that was really deeply aware of the injustice that was being committed around them. So um, these were social leaders. These were people who decided to join um, to join the church to to pursue a religious vocation because of their commitment to transformation, um, to social justice, because of their commitment to, to bringing about justice for those around them in their own communities. So that informs a lot of what, how liberation theology will get enacted in the country, but it also informs us as people. Um, as we, our local leader was really more the religious leader than the political leader. Because the political leaders are always, were oftentimes we understand them as corrupt, as um, being repre representing really a, a, a small subsection of the population that we label a, a, as elite, but that has a long history of, um, of being really dissociated from the rest of the population. So Camilo Torres was really that model. Um, and there were many priests that were contemporary to him who were like him, many of them joined the ELN and the FARC and the M19 and the many other uh, guerrilla groups that, that were part of that second half of the 20th century uh, political history of Colombia. But many of them didn't. Many of them were just um, like radical priests preaching very, very challenging sermons. I remember going to church as a kid in, in what was half a rich neighborhood, half a very poor neighborhood, and the priest will stand up and tell the rich directly, like I would, he will yell at them. I remember this image saying that it was easier for uh, the camel to go through the, the eye of a needle than to, for the rich to enter into heaven. And, and I'm talking to you. I remember that second part of it. Um, and, you know, that was, that was, the, that was the, the discourse. And, and we were there every Sunday listening to it. Um, and th there are a lot of resources computers that can be found now online. A lot of a lot of his um, um, his um, his writings and a lot of his own recordings for uh, a radio. There is a there is a um, a radio station in Colombia that has traditionally been um, associated with movements that that ask for for change, and they recorded a lot of his sermons. And they are in their archives as well. So it's really interesting to hear his voice and his passion and his his understanding of the situation of Colombia back then. That's really fun. Um, it also kind of speaks to your point about memory, though, early too, right? That uh, you know, Camilo Torres stands out because of uh, the sort of narrative that's been built around him. But like, as you're reminding us that uh, there's there's another there's another type of memory or a deeper memory about Camilo Torres that's uh, you know. Uh, present in Colombia today that uh, we should also uh, think about. Uh, well, well, turning a little bit from uh, someone as radical as Camilo Torres towards someone else who is fine, but not as radical, I guess, Pope Francis. Um, er earlier this month, he released a really interesting encyclical called Fratelli Tutti. Uh, the encyclical has a lot to say about Catholic social teaching, and it's you know really hard to ignore what you might call the socialist currents in the encyclical. Um, but that being the case, uh, what do you think it means for like liberation theology? Is it like a compromise with it? Is it something different altogether? How can we think about these? Two? 
Uh, I I thought about this question a lot, and and I to be honest, when I first read it, I I didn't really know where I was going to land, but I done some some reflections since, and and I think I I, I am somewhere now in the, in the spectrum, and I I think the question the answer to the question is connected to what I was saying earlier about um, local communities. Um, is easy to understand liberation theology as uh, kind of a continental movement where everybody agreed with one another and like there were some principles that were drafted in 1968 and that's liberation theology. But the reality is that that's not, that's not the story of liberation theology. That gathering of priests and bishops was the, the climax of local movements that were coming together and finding out that each other had a similar sense of what needed to happen and what needed to happen both theologically, politically, and socially. So um, fast forward to, to Francis and, and, and what he is uh, including within this encyclical. Um, and, and you get a lot of those little pieces. So of of different understandings of what liberation theology should be like from the different movements that he, I think, knows really well. So I'll, I'll give you kind of a couple of examples is um, the uh, the kind of liberation and the kind of, um, a, of Christ uh, that was advocated by the communities in in Western Colombia, which were a big part of that liber early liberation theology movement, is very different from the communities in uh, in Mexico uh, that were also central to a later meeting of bishops, and and they were different because they were responding to the local type of oppression and inequality. Um, in Colombia, uh, things were always around racial pressures. Uh, because there is a, a large Afro-Colombian community, there is a large indigenous community in the in the west of Colombia, but the rest of the country is quite mixed. Whereas in a place like Mexico, you you get um, a very large indigenous uh, Mexican community um, and smaller uh, groups of other types of minorities coming together and trying to articulate those those principles within their own context. Now. Talking to Francis, Francis is understands the principles of liberation theology out of his own desire to to understand his colleagues as he was being formed as a priest and as a as a kind of religious leader within the the, the Argentinian um, kind of clerical system. So he's he's a Jesuit who becomes the head of the Jesuits for. Argentina, who becomes the head of the Jesuits for Latin America, who then is kind of exiled, and then who after that becomes a bishop, and we know the rest of the story. But he was a very conservative figure in the beginning of his life. And he was a very conservative figure around a lot of people that were very um, kind of left-leaning. So he's only when he re returns to that analysis of why what mobilized his friends and his students and the, the priests that were under his watch that he realizes kind of the the richness of the movement and and i think that he all the way to to this encyclical is being is being very respectful 
of of those local differences, of those personal stories, of those calls, but also of the fact that they don't have the same level of radicality. So, you know, we talked about uh, Camilo Torres being a very radical figure, but there are many kind of shades of radical in liberation theology. And it's not either liberation theology or a, or a watered-down liberation theology. No, is that other less radical versions of it are very unique expressions of liberation theology as well. And he is picking up on that. And, and you can see it, and not only here, if you go back to previous encyclicals, down to Evangelii Gaudium, you're going to see that there are these this moments when he gets really kind of riled up and he says something about, we we need to make sure that, that the church kind of is, that responds to the cultural moment and then that he dialogues with people and, and he uses very forceful language. And a few paragraphs later, he will be very conciliatory and kind of centrist. Um, but I think that he is bringing out those, all those different voices and he's trying to put them together in unified texts that will speak to the rest of the church. Um, that might be the process that I see here. I, I might read different, different shades of liberation theology in, in between documents, but also within this document as well, as, um, as extreme as this seems to some more conservative Catholics. Uh, it's good to see Pope Francis that way, I think, Hector. Uh, it helps make sense of how he's maybe more conservative than some people like and more radical than other people would like, that he's always sort of negotiating the very, very big tent that is liberation theology plus all the other kinds of Catholics in the world. Um, so I appreciate that perspective. Uh, we could ask you to talk about liberation theology for an entire episode, I feel like. Um, but I want to make sure that we get to some more recent things that are happening in, in Colombia. Maybe we can circle back to some of that, um, theological stuff here as well. Um, you know, we've been talking about a lot of history, but a lot of these forces that you've been introducing us to are still really relevant in Colombia. And just this past week, we've seen some stories come out about an, an ongoing indigenous struggle in Colombia, uh, called the Minga Indigena, or I'm sorry, you'll have to <laughs> say it right for me. Um, that's uh, coalescing around a, a big event in Bogota. Um, can you tell us maybe a little bit about what's going on with this current movement? Uh, what is it, and what's the sort of relevance in a place like Colombia? This is a very interesting uh, kind of um, development uh, for me to to see these days. So is the Minga Indigena, so Indigenous Minga, and and just to give uh, uh, listeners a, a bit of context, Minga comes from the, the Quechua word Minka, which means collective work or um, kind of communal purpose. Um, and, and, uh, and, a Ming, and, a, and a Minga, Minka, could be both a communal kind of action or a communal decision. So that it, it has different kind of shades to it, which is quite interesting. And I'm, I'm glad that they are kind of using, they are retrieving this, this terminology, this Quechua terminology to, to give a name to, to movements that really have started since um, October of 2019. So uh, a lot of um, scholars, and particularly in Ecuador, will, will, will um, call October of 2019 the, the October of the Awakening. Um, and then a lot of awakening movements. I don't know if you, you, you remember, I'm sure you do, because we've talked about this, um, the, the different movements in Ecuador, in Bolivia, in Colombia, in Chile, in 
we're seeing the fruits of some of those now, but they, they started in October and they've been brewing for a while. And um, these groups, what, what they have to them, which is different from previous uh, expressions of protest, is that they have been led mainly by indigenous communities. Uh, and I know the term indigenous is, is, not, is not the preferred term for, for, a, for a lot of the community that I'm referring to, um, but it gives us an idea of, of who we are talking about, people who um, connect themselves to a pre-Hispanic past in Latin America. And, um, and these, these communities have, they, they react to two types of violence. So they react to what they call the extraction violence, so any violence that comes with the colonization, conquest, and neocolonization process that is about getting natural resources out of Latin America and to other places, and the armed violence done by either left or right or center or whatever group it is. So that is that is the 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 main kind of tagline of the of the indigenous groups leading these marches. Um, so that's the first aspect of them. Second aspect, um, really important, is that it they it needs to be connected to kind of a journey. And and these journeys have been from the places which are usually in the, the periphery of the countries where the indigenous communities live, um, and they journey towards the capital cities or the, or the, cent- the economic centers uh, peacefully, but, but uh, strongly. But they, are, they do not, they, they continue their, their, their way. They, if they block roads in the way, they block roads on the way. That's, that, that is part of their, the, of their, um, their MO. But at the same time, they do not enact any violence along the way. And, you know, the, there are different takes on what protest and violence, how they should interact with one another, but their vision is that it needs to be pacific. Um, usually connected with music. I was, before, uh, before the, the recording, I was listening to one of, the, one of the marches with a lot of drumming, and it was quite fascinating to see the whole thing. Um, but it is, it usually, the, the, it seems very happy. So for, for a North American eye, if you were to just watch the video, of the, the little clip of the drumming, you will not know it's a protest. You'll think it's some like street art thing because it, there is, there is, um, the, the kind of the violin content of it is not there, but there is a very strong presence. You can really sense it. So, okay. So that second aspect of the, the Mingas. Now the third part of it, which is even cooler than everything else, is the fact that they galvanize a lot of the communities from other ethnic backgrounds and student populations. So it is now not only indigenous, it is Afro-Latin uh, Americans and in the case of Colombia, Afro-Colombian, um, and uh, tons of students from universities. And, and within the students, what is really interesting is that is students from the public universities, who are the ones that are usually protest, um, but it's also a big contingent of students from private universities. So kids from rich families that are part of the landowners that are enacting some of the oppression that we are talking about, realizing the oppression that they are enacting and joining these marches. So there, you have all of that into that in, in, in the same pocket and they all journey towards the the main squares of the cities, and in this case of Bogota, the capital city, in a very colorful march. But also, um, 
their their message is very clear around uh, the absence of the government. The the government has not been present as a support to them. Um, and there are different ways of interaction between uh, kind of First Nations or Indigenous uh, communities and states. But in the place of uh, in, in in the in the context of a place like Colombia. There is a sense that they are Colombian as well. Most of these communities consider themselves Colombian, uh, Waju, Colombian, Paez, Colombian. Um, so they they think that the 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 state has a responsibility with them. It's, it's it's a different responsibility to the one that it has to the rest of the citizens because of their ancestral heritage. Um, but they are claiming that the state is not protecting them. So in the absence of um, one of the biggest agents of the conflict, which was FARC that used to be kind of protecting those territories, but also providing um, surveillance slash leadership is a very complicated role that they had in those territories. Then now the leadership is under the the indigenous um, leaders. They, 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 what you will call here the chiefs, we don't call them that way, but um, they, are now understanding that they are in charge of their own territory, but the state is not present to, to provide any support uh, or to provide any protection from the other armed agents that are now trying to take over their own territories. So these Mingas are, are also a reaction to, to that um, weakness of the state. Um, so it's, you know, it's a very complex process, but it's something that is also doesn't end there. The Minga is part of a longer process. is is a number of mobilizations. They will continue with that. The journeys will continue across the Americas as well. So you've seen that one of them is actually, um, it was actually trying to get through the Americas on the way to the UN. So it, that idea of journeying pacifically, but steadily and making themselves known by gathering uh, other um other groups within within society that will um, that will understand what um, the, their desire for change is. Such a fascinating story and incredibly uplifting too. Um, a very good thing to hear. Uh, I, I'm really interested in. Well, I mean, there's so much going on. Um, I would love to know what you think about you know where the movement is going. But um, <laughs> I don't know how how keen you are, you are on to predict something. But I'm also really interested in in hearing, I guess, more about the the FARC part of the story. I mean, um, FARC has a really complicated history in Colombia, and uh, you know, just to say the very least about it, for sure. Um, but you mentioned that you know when when FARC sort of like disbands and and moves out of those spaces, it creates a power vacuum. I, I guess like how is all of that really playing into the situation? Like, how does the aftermath of that slow drip by drip civil war play into this indigenous movement um, specifically? Um, uh, that, that's, that's a great question, and. To be honest, is the the non uplifting part of the story is the fact that after the FARC um, dismantled and after the the FARC became a, a political agent without without being an armed agent in the country, um, we've seen more um, murder murders of social leaders than we've ever before. So in the last um, in the last few years. So many social community social leaders have been murdered because of their um, just for their, of their actions, trying to defend their own territories, trying to defend the population from different from different um, agents, and and this goes all the way from transnational companies that want to uh, take over and do some kind of mining or 
uh, harvesting to uh, just local landlords that decided that this is now the time to take over those lands that they couldn't take over before because the FARC was there. So the easiest route around that is, okay, we won't kill everybody because we, we need people to work for us, but we will kill the social leaders, the loudmouths, the people that are going to react to us, and, and then we, we will take over. We'll, we'll use that power vacuum and we'll use the fact that the leader is gone to appoint our own leader who will bring a new structure to the region. Um, that is a prevalent phenomenon in, in, the West, in Western Colombia, so in the Pacific, um, especially around um, a, three provinces, a Valle del Cauca, Cauca and Nariño, which are the south, most southern western provinces of Colombia, and that happen to have the greatest, the greatest numbers of um, Colombian indigenous um, who are Paez. That's their, uh, their, their ancestral um, name. So that, that it is because of that, uh, those pressures there that they, they've um, been able to kind of mobilize. They are, they are a larger group. They are a, a lot of uh, in Paez indigenous are kind of highly educated, but returning to their own, to their own communities. You know, in, like in every other place in the world, you have indigenous communities that go through a Western education process and do not return home. Um, here with the Pais, there is a, a bit of a different phenomenon when, where they, they, the younger generations are educated in universities and they return to the region. And funnily enough, it also happens with the Afro-Colombian community that is, a, is well, Cali, Colombia, which is in this region that I'm talking about, has the, the largest Afro-Colombian population. So similar situation with the Afro-Colombian communities, they are they are experiencing the the murders of a lot of their uh, their social leaders, and they are kind of trying to react to that as 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 quickly as they can within within their own possibilities because they are also struggling with COVID, they are also struggling with extreme poverty, they are also there's so many things that they need to consider, but they miraculously miraculously make up the time to be able to um, to mobilize and be two or three weeks on the road towards Bogota in something like Laminga. Yeah, uh, that definitely gives us a sense of the gravity of all the uh, things that are happening in the country now. Maybe to um, contextualize this in a, a final question um, that uh, makes us think a little bit about all the different forces at work again. You know, there's a, there's a lot of global oppression, there's a lot of local oppression, um, but there's also this really interesting phenomenon now that we're seeing of all kinds of global efforts of solidarity, you know, like Black Lives Matter is emanating not just in the U.S., not just in Canada or other parts of the world, but but everywhere, it seems, uh, in the streets of Colombia and, and other places, too. Um, and of course, in Latin America, there's all kinds of um, really exciting movements, lots of also really big challenges happening uh, around Colombia and places like Bolivia and Venezuela and, and Chile. Uh, could you maybe close us out by connecting some of the struggles in Colombia to other things that are happening in the region or around the world? Yeah, it definitely. And I, I've mentioned this earlier. Um, there is the racial component of it. There is the kind of the awareness about the issue being also an, an issue of race. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that we um, we are gaining from what is happening in North America. Um because up to now, 
there was a lot of the rhetoric around class, class struggle. There is a class struggle that is where we're asking for a land reform. That's that that's what is going to solve all, all our or all of our problems. But um, the the reaction to that is um, is a class response. But a class response is not going to resolve all the 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 expressions of what is happening because it is also a racial issue. It is also about how minoritized communities such as indigenous and Afro-Colombian communities, um, they they don't have a place, not only because they don't have money or land, but because of their color of their skin. So then the connection with that is is important. Um, I think the indigenous connection is a connection that is, has been there for a while. So they back back in the in the years of the Occupy movement and even before that, when there was a kind of a solidarity indigenous movement that first talked about the the presence in the UN and the, the indigenous rights uh, to be advocated for in the context of the UN, that created a lot of that kind of transcontinental awareness of all the indigenous communities have suffered a similar destiny. Um, and and why is that? Because they haven't been organized, because they haven't shared their struggles, because be, there are many, many things in addition to the actual structural oppression that they started contemplating. And, and it's, it's fascinating to see some of the, the reactions to that. That in terms of race. Now in terms of kind of the regional geopolitics, um, you see, I, I, one of the, the opening comments that I made was around the Constitution of 1991. Um, it, it's, it's a very early kind of new constitution, new hopeful constitution in Colombia. And that, that constitution has been the, the object of so many critics and so many uh, debates. But it is something that we can hold on to in a way or another as a, as a sign of, of a hopeful future for Colombians. But it hasn't happened everywhere in the region. As you could see with the case of Chile, um, the, the constitution, um, still the constitution that was written during Pinochet's time. And, uh, and Pinochet is, is openly declared an international <laughs> uh, criminal, someone who, who committed uh, crimes of huma against humanity in, to his own people and with neighboring peoples as well. So how can you hold both the idea that Pinochet is this terrible cr criminal and that his government sponsored so much of the suffering of their own people with the idea that the constitution that was drafted by their government is something that needs to be upheld. And there are many people that still su support that constitution. So, uh, but there is, the, there is the referendum, and a couple of days ago, the, the referendum uh, was, was uh, voted on, and uh, they decided to change the constitution. But that is also not, all, not exclusive to Colombia and Chile, but it's, it's a process that has happened all throughout Latin America. So, those, again, the, the October awakening is an awakening of the whole region as countries citizens of different countries see what is happening in others. Um, so I've seen a lot of kind of memes in the last couple of days after Chile made that decision um, around the change of the constitution, which is kind of a, a reverse meme. And the meme is about kind of we have the constitution that we that we wanted and we had it for a while, but we haven't really tried 
the um, the the political leaders than than have been criminals in Colombia and in Chile they tried the criminal but they hadn't changed the constitution so that movement should come back and if we have the new constitution we should see the example of Chile and we should really put pressure on the state and in the international community to try people like former uh, presidents of Colombia that have contributed so much to um, to the suffering of our own people. Well, thanks, Hector. Uh, that's a really um, complex note to end on for sure, but an important one to uh, give us a sense of everything that's happening in the region. Um, we're really grateful for you coming on the show and sharing with us a bit about your, your life and your work and what's going on. Um, is there anything at the end here that you really want to plug or direct people towards? I just think that people need to like look up this movement, uh, like just in on your own time, in your own, in with through your own networks, uh, find out about movements like uh, the Minga Indígena, about the October Awakening, about uh, the different the different protest movements that are happening throughout Latin America, because they, I believe that it's a lot to learn from them. Don't try to kind of have them all under under the same like the same umbrella they are different but if you find something that is appealing about one of them just try to explore it in depth and you you'll find a lot of really interesting and hopeful things signs for for the rest of the world i do believe that 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 latin americans not because i am latin american but i i do believe that that these these communities in latin america have in latin america have, have a lot to to teach us uh, about what is happening right now Thanks, Hector. Uh, it's been too long for us to go without having you on the show, but we're glad we finally made it. I'm sure it won't be the last time. Thank you. I, I was happy to be here. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast, and you can pass us a couple of bucks over that way. Um, if you do that, we also have another podcast there called The Lock-In, where we talk about current events and all kinds of goofy, bad jokes happen over there, and you can only find that out behind the old paywall. Uh, you can find us on social media, at The Magnificast on Twitter. Um, you can send us an email, themagnificast at gmail.com. And our music is by Amaria Armstrong. Our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. See you next week. I don't want to get up at church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early.